This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, June 27th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. The loud and sometimes violent protests on many college campuses have shut down controversial speakers and created a chill on some campuses. So what do these young people want? Robbie Suave tries to find out in his new book, Panic Attack, Young Radicals in the Age of Trump. We spoke last week. I don't describe it as a crisis because it's not true that all young people or all students or even most of them uh, want to shut down or censor and so on. However, a sort of tiny number of extremely progressive, politically active young people, students, um, they do essentially believe that um, all speech that makes them uncomfortable or makes someone uncomfortable that they're sympathetic with should be prevented from being heard. Um, should be silenced, Ed, that it's a matter of safety, essentially. And, and broadly speaking, how do universities react to this? Are they're, they're part of the problem, presumably, or uh, are there some universities that have, aside, University of Chicago right. aside, uh, that have taken a stand and said, look, we, this is a, an educational environment. You will be confronted with difficult ideas to handle. Some have done a better job than others. Uh, in addition to Chicago, many have co-signed those principles. Um, and then there are many colleges and universities where they haven't had this problem to the same degree. This is a bigger problem at very elite, very privileged, wealthy liberal arts colleges. Um, those places have not understood how to fix this problem. They haven't understood how to tackle the students. Um, in some cases, it's not obvious. The administrators, I think, are a mix of people who are – some of them are just sympathetic, straight up sympathetic to these sort of very progressive student demands. Others uh, are not but think it's a bigger PR or HR concern to do something about it. They they think it looks it looks bad for the institution, so they'd rather just ignore it. They, th- they think the cost of doing something would, would be worse. Um, and then others uh, others have taken a firmer hand. I mean, there's even there are policies being discussed in state legislatures to to out to sort of criminalize the kinds of things the students are doing, which I have deeply mixed feelings about. So, I feel like we may be getting ahead of ourselves. What are the demands that are becoming more and more popular on campus that are troublesome both to uh, universities themselves, uh, the opportunities that universities ought to afford young people and the public at large. So it, it's a mix of political demands that would be that are sort of just common to progressive activism. Um, a lot of them want more resources uh, on campus. They want a new multicultural center. They want more. Uh, they want more staffers, administrators to be hired to coordinate specific categories of marginalization or diversity, things like that. I mean, they really they would tremendously grow the bureaucracy of campus if their goals were even met like twenty percent of the way. Um, but they also assert. Again, this is not most students, or this is this is a small cabal. They assert that you have a right to an education that is free of uh, discomfort or hostility or harassment, and they they define these things so broadly to include um, certainly protected speech or to infringe upon protected speech. They think that they have a right to be affirmed and to be free of interaction with ideas that would cause you emotional uh, 
turmoil because emotional comfort is to them a form of physical safety or it's a related thing. And just as the university is under some obligation to a uh, considerable obligation to, you know, protect their physical safety, so too are they obligated to protect their emotional well-being. Um, and and they uh, have been more than willing at in many cases at many universities to to when when these demands are not being met to greet um, speakers, uh, even their own professors who have offended them for some reason uh, with with protests, with shut not just protests, but shutdown tactics and even rarely, but in some cases, actual violence um, on behalf of these goals. Yeah, because uh, previous guests of this podcast, Charles Murray, Josh Blackman have had various of their speeches protested, um, Charles Murray more famously. But it seems to me that there is these young people are just wasting a lot of time. Like if you made the C average again, maybe they wouldn't have time to engage in these kinds of complaints. Um, uh, certainly. Well, and then sometimes there are complaints. Then you you see some, you know, every now and then the mask slips a little bit. You know, I, I was covering some student kerfuffle at, well, it was a, it was a nearby university. I don't remember. I think it might've been University of Maryland. And, you know, what were the demands by the activist student group? Well, they were so troubled by what had taken place on campus. They certainly couldn't take their exams this week. They, they, they need to take them next week. You know, there's the, there's the, and also uh, at Brown, for instance, there was, there were activists complaining that, you know, they were so exhausted by their political advocacy that they were, they were having panic attacks and fainting spells in class, so they couldn't go to class anymore. Um, there's actually, a, I mean, it's sort of part of their ideology that if you're truly passionate about the things they're passionate about, you're going to be um, drained mentally. You're going to be in in almost like serious. You're going to be traumatized. So, and and because the kind of most victimized people have a degree of power and status in activist circles there's almost a there's almost a, a a desire to to be perceived as suffering from some terrible trauma or or inability to cope with life on campus like that's how you can demonstrate that you are truly truly an activist you are really committed to the cause is if it's like if it's killing you on it, on the inside it it, it yeah it, the way that a, a lot of this type of activism has been presented um it seems like it's a weird mix of supreme confidence and extreme fragility and 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 a willingness to be extremely confrontational at times yeah that's a, that's a great way of describing it and it's not um what i first suspected uh i i i suppose i naively assumed when i when i was beginning the process of kind of writing this book i was more thinking well the tactic you know why do you think the tactics you're using are effective at social change, are convincing people, you know, because I thought, you know, if you if you scream at Charles Murray, if you invite violence against him, if you make it so no one can hear him talk, my thinking was, well, you're probably making Charles Murray look more sympathetic and yourself look unsympathetic to 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 the most people who would be unfamiliar with either of your two groups. So isn't this a stupid thing to do then if you're trying to, you know, turn people off of Charles Murray? But they're not actually trying to turn people off of Charles Murray. They're trying to prevent the harm that his words cause to people they're sympathetic to in their campus community. So that's a different, that's a diff much different goal than sort of broader social change. I don't think they have a lot of faith 
that broader social change is sort of possible if you're having like an exchange or debate of ideas that like that's how it works um, or that's not their sort of driving goal. Is there is there no regard for uh, things like the First Amendment? Is that not a consideration at all? Or is, is it hand waved away or is it something that that these groups actually engage with and say, yes, there are rights at issue here? Well, uh, many of the people I talked to thought that um, there was a hate speech exception in the First Amendment. Um, they believe that that is they, they, that they believe that that is functionally true. Yes. Um, some believe it, that should be true, and then others believe that was already true. There was um, there was an activist who uh, thought that you, who, whose demand was that you, th this campus's um, hate speech policy needs to be brought in line with the U.S. federal codes. Hates you know because because the 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 federal government prohibits hate speech, so certainly we will prohibit hate speech on this campus. Obviously, the federal government does not prohibit hate speech. The the two things are already perfectly in line. Um, there's a, you know, and this isn't unique to activists, right? You can ask any person on the street about what the First Amendment is, what it protects, and what the relevant jurisprudence is, and they'll probably get it wrong because people are not particularly well-educated um, on matters of public policy. But there, there is absolutely a perception among the activist community, um, and to a lesser degree but still prevalent, um, among young people and students at large, that there is this obvious distinction between hate speech and protected free speech. Um, I mean, Cato's own um, sort of uh, uh, polling on this, there, you, you did some great work uh, a few years ago, I mean, two or three years ago, I think two years ago, that, that really did show or reveal that um, current students, or now they would be recent graduates um, were really worse on this question actually than older Amer old than educated older Americans than than other groups um, it was a troubling finding so to the extent that the federal government is involved on campuses with respect to protecting civil rights what has you know what has that what has the federal government done to either enable or prevent or enforce uh, civil rights on campus. So the the most relevant um, sort of federal intervention that that may that I think threatened um, free expression and due process was related to Title IX. So actually, it was uh, was the which Title IX is the statute that mandates um, uh, gender and sex based equality in education. Over the the under the Obama years, um, a a sort of sub agent sub agency of the Education Department that's responsible for uh, making sure that schools are complying with Title IX issued guidance. This came out in 2011 that uh, that was very very broad and far reaching, and to my mind, not at all in keeping with the one sentence statute <laughs> that just says you can't discriminate on the basis of gender. Was this the um, dear colleague letter? Yeah, it came it came out in a form of a dear colleague letter where they essentially said that universities had to do a much better job, had to be much more aggressive about policing um, sexual misconduct. And they defined sexual misconduct as essentially any sort of unwanted conduct of a sexual nature in the eyes of the beholder. Not, not it didn't have to be pervasive or repetitive or pegged to the standards of like a reasonable person, all things that 
that courts have imposed on kind of harassment law understanding to make it not so broad. Um, so this uh, and then that these misconduct allegations would be adjudicated under certain standards that I think are very unfriendly to the accused that kind of fly in the face of due process. So there was a free expression um, effect here because I mean, honestly, you couldn't it, it, you would fear that even just discussing topics of sex and gender in class, if someone was uncomfortable, if any student was uncomfortable by it, you could be at risk of violating Title IX. And there's all these, oh, am I violating am I violating title like the like the specter of Title IX being raised the way like Catch-22 is raised in the book Catch-22. It's just like a cover for any – it's an excuse to stop any conversation. Um, and there are examples that I have a lot of them in the book about administrators taking it way too far, faculty fearing – you know, fearing unreasonably because no court would agree, would have agreed that this expression is actually – um, illegal under Title IX. This was just this was just an agency of the federal government asserting so and saying, "Well, you can take us to court if you think we're wrong. That would be fine." But no university wants to do that. There are universities that are private that have nonetheless sworn uh, in some way or uh, you know uh, declared publicly that they support the freedom of expression, the freedom of academic inquiry, and that sort of thing. Marquette comes to mind as as one of those schools. Um, are, are these issues as broad at public universities as they are at the sort of elite uh, liberal arts colleges that you mentioned? Uh, yeah, right. So public versus private has not been a meaningful distinction for whether there's a climate of sort of censorship on campus. Um, you know, more elite or well-regarded public schools um, have certainly had similar issues. Um you know, if there is a climate of activism in the city in which the public university is located, that also affects things. So the UC, some of the UC schools um, have had uh, Berkeley, for instance, has a has an act has a permanent activist community, and they are the ones actually that were engaged in much of the violence we saw at Berkeley. Rather, so it's not you know it's not the case necessarily that it's the students um, who are actually you know setting things on fire. Um, However, the so many of the students did have a, a did support the idea that the controversial speakers, right wing speakers, being brought should absolutely not be brought. Um, they were not willing to cause violence themselves. Um, so, uh, so, so public versus private has not been as much uh, the meaningful distinction. And now I, I make a distinction. Obviously, public universities are much more required because of the First Amendment to allow speech. Uh, many private universities, though, do do say do make a sort of contractual promise to their students who are, after all, paying like tons of money. So there is kind of an agreement going there where I, I do think they should follow through on their obligations, uh, given that it's a contractual arrangement that is costs the, is money. This, is this sticker price of the education a relevant uh, metric? Yes. <laughs> yeah. The, I mean, the more expensive, the more elite, the more and then maybe not surprisingly, the more at some Students demand, um, you know, very. These are often privileged and well-off young people. I think maybe they they think they're paying for an experience, not an uncomfortable experience, an experience of coddling. So they're demanding what they're paying for. I, I mean, I, I think unfortunately it is the case that most that what most students are looking to get out of uh, out of college, particularly if it's an elite college or a large college rather than a technical college or a community college, uh, the, the people 
at the community college, the technical college, you're looking to get out of it a skill. You're going there for a reason, not so much the social experience. At these at these more advanced, more expensive institutions, it seems to me people are often just going for the experience. Um, I mean, that's the subtext of like this whole cheating scandal where all the celebrities, um, the celebrities, the very the very wealthy people who 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 just engaged in just horrible fraud to get their kids into very elite school. And they were willing to pay millions of dollars. There's no way that it is actually like worth millions of dollars more to go to, you know, this school that's slightly better than this one. If you were just like narrowly concerned about the child's future, you would hand them the money and let them go to the slightly less prestigious school. It's there's it is absolutely not the case that the education is worth that much more. So that so they're going for the experience. They're going for the social experience. Maybe the 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 joy, the personal fulfillment of being able to say for the rest of your life that you're a graduate of UCLA instead of whatever the next one down is, Caltech or something. Um, so that's so so that shows to me that that's actually what unfortunately what a college education has become you devote some time to talking about the southern southern poverty law center which is a very well regarded group when it comes to uh rating or providing uh some background information on groups that they consider to be hate groups or extremist groups and they categorize them in various ways what is your general view of of how they do what they do uh some some nonprofits have used uh, ratings produced by SPLC as essentially their Bible for uh, deciding whether or not to affiliate with certain groups. So I've been skeptical in general of the idea that hate crimes are increasing dramatically. It's sort of a media uh, um, suggestion that that's what's going on, but the data is far from clear. I mean, there there are more hate crimes, but there are also more municipalities just reporting data. So so just sort of covering the topic or paying more attention to the, to it is going to make it look like the problem's getting worse. Um, the SPLC, you know, every year it's, oh, there's a staggering, there's even more hate groups than there were before. Um, that's kind of their claim. And they have this map where you can click on a state and see all the hate groups that exist in their state. And, oh, there's nine, nine hate groups in Oklahoma. Or so I don't know, however many it is, something like that. And uh, this is, this is so frightening. How could, there could be this many hate groups, but then, but you don't know how many people there are in any of these groups. And in fact, many of them, it's probably going to be like one or two guys. It's not really a active political, th- they're not, they're not doing anything. It's not like it's, it's not the alt-right Charlottesville people like every time. And actually, I mean, I was looking through their map. It, it felt like in a bunch of the states, half of the groups were actually black nationalist groups, like the nation of Islam, um, who are, who are insane and yell horrible things at people, but are not, are posed no threat, are engaged in zero violence. Um, that's true for most of these groups. So, and also it could, you know, you could have a group splinter and then there are two groups. So there's more groups. Oh no. But, but it was, wasn't the splintering of the group probably shows a decline in their influence rather than an increase in the number of hate groups. The, um, the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, which pays specific attention to uh, anti-Semitism, uh, all, I, I think they're, they're much more careful with how they present things than the Southern Poverty Law Center. But I was looking through their data and, you know, it, the, the headline 
for for two cycles ago for the data. You know, the headline for every media uh, media company was, oh, a- anti-Semitism has like spiked 50% or something um, under Trump. But then you look and it's mostly um, anti-Semitic harassment that was solely perpetrated by one person. It's the sa- It was the same crazy teenager just uh, who was lived in Israel calling up all these Jewish institutions. Anti-Semitic violence was way down. So you can always play with the numbers, I think, to support a, a more dramatic narrative. But um, I'm I'm just I'm not persuaded that there actually is a rising tide of hate crimes, and the Southern Poverty Law Center specifically is is overrepresenting the problem without question. In a lot of this uh, activism, um, how much of it is is tied in closely with opposition to free markets? Um, so that is a a that is almost an older view. The the kind of uh, Marxist new left, uh, new left being the new left of the nineteen sixties, not actually new new anymore. But the kind of older school lefty view, right, was about was about economic condi- was about class and economic conditions. That's the the doctrinaire kind of Marxist approach. Um, it's a little bit. A little bit in tension with the new intersectionality focused left that is very interested in race and gender and sexual orientation and all sorts of other categories of oppression. Whereas your doctrinaire, old school Bernie Sanders, Marxist type person is like, okay, those are those are elements of class, but class is the is the is the is the trunk of the tree. Um, so there is a little bit of of tension now. The Certainly one of the activist groups that I, I talk about in the book, um, the Democratic Socialists of America, are – they're by far the most organized uh, of, the, of the groups I talk about. They, um, they are exerting real political influence. Um, their success in the last few years is dramatic and cannot be understated. I mean this is a group that basically had no new members for decades and their members just kept getting older. And then after Bernie Sanders ran for president, their numbers went from like 5,000 to 50,000 overnight. And now their average age of the person involved in this group is very young. You know, these are these are young, smart, um, politically interested people who who um, who are are socialists, who are very deliberately socialist, who think capitalism is a bad system, uh, is a failed system, and should be replaced by socialism. They often define socialism. As democratic socialism, as in a in very broad, um, difficult to grapple with terms that make it actually hard to refute. Um, this is something AOC does uh, whenever she's on TV talking about it. But um, it, it would be uh, it would be a mistake to understate their influence in and someone like AOC, unlike Bernie Sanders, has done a a exemplary job of grappling uh, of merging the old left Marxist class stuff with the new intersectionality, race, gender, everything else stuff. Um, she's the one who pulls that off super well. Okay. So I'm a, let's say I'm a parent of somebody, of a kid who's about to go to college. Do I send them at all? That's a good question. Um, you don't have to. But the most, probably just the most important thing is admitting that your kid does not have to go to college. Um, and it is not worth um, going massively into debt to go to a better school if you have no clear plan for how you're going to capitalize on that down the road. Do not 
go to a very prestigious school, go massively into debt, and major in something with with um, decreasing economic prospects. Uh, or at least don't do that and then turn around and say, <laughs> capitalism is a failed system <laughs> because this isn't hasn't worked out for me, which is what so many have done. Um, you can you can you can skip college altogether. You can get a go. You can have a tra- you can do a trade. You can go to community college. Um, now I don't I don't want people to think that I can't send my kid to like Harvard or Yale or something because they're going to become um, brainwashed by their liberal professors and 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 like that's the problem. Um, I, I don't think that's the case. I, I think um, I actually think the faculty are more cognizant of the problems I'm talking about than it seems and are not the creators of it whatsoever. They in fact think that their own free expression rights are they correctly have noticed that their own sort of academic freedom is threatened, uh, even if they're lefties, by some of the progressive student um, antics. Um, and, and I think the the kind of militant anti-speech students uh, are more influenced by each other and learning from other students than they are from their from their teachers. So it's not it's not the case that I think um, you need to avoid college to like escape the liberal bias or something like that. Um, but you you should avoid just going to it for an experience and being willing to pay any amount of money to get it. Because that is, if ever that was worth doing, that ship has sailed. Robbie Suave is author of Panic Attack, Young Radicals in the Age of Trump. We spoke last week. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.